All right, before we get jumping into the message today, I, I got to do a little introduction here. So uh, for the last two years, uh, Brady and I and our staff and our board have been looking and doing searches and interviews uh, to hire somebody to join Hannah in being a, a pastor of spiritual formation and also oversee our care ministry. So one person rose to the top. I mean, the very top. Uh, seminary degreed. He's been attending uh, Keystone for seven years. An army chaplain that uh, oversees all the chaplains for the state of Michigan. A recent graduate of War College. I forgot about that. Uh, And passionate about helping people take their next steps in following Jesus, whatever that next step is. Um, We were sitting in Schnitz, and uh, um, I made this offer that was accepted in record time. He accepted it faster than Brady accepted his. It was unbelievable. So today (laughs) I want to introduce to you teaching Drew Brennan. So, Thank you. Drew is going to be joining our staff on January 1, and uh, we're already over time today, so you got your work cut out for you. Good luck. All right. Well, I, I guess he made me an offer I couldn't refuse, but uh, well, well, we'll get it moving here. I, I promised Hannah, my wife Hannah, uh, that today I would not stand up here and tell war stories. So uh, you don't get any war stories today. Ah. Oh. I, I am a recent war college graduate, so if you do need war, I'm the guy that you can call, and, it's, and, I, and I can consult you on that. No, so my name is Drew. It's so great to see you. For those that are watching online, welcome. We're in a series right now, a three-part series that we're calling Detours. And in that series, we are taking a look at this question. What can you do when life does not go as planned. I think the key word in this question is when. You see, you don't have to live on this rock that we call Earth very long, for more than a few days, to realize that the human experience, life as we know it, is full of frustration. Has anybody in this room ever met a toddler? (laughs) Life is full of frustration. And so we're examining this question through the lens of an Old Testament character named Joseph. Now, this is not the Joseph of Joseph and Mary, the father of Jesus. We have to step back multiple generations to the great-grandson of Abraham. And if you remember from last week, Brady talked about the story of Joseph and set up this story. And we're going to pick up basically where he left us off, but I'm actually going to take us on a little detour. You see... I like to look at the story of Joseph through the lens of clothing and identity. Clothing and identity. So I'm standing up here, rough, tough, macho, army chaplain guy, right? But deep down inside of me is buried a bit of a dandy. You see, for better or worse, I kind of grew up liking fashion. And I'm going to take you on a little story here. When I was five years old, my father passed away. And we moved from northern Minnesota to southern Minnesota to live with my grandparents. And I had to adjust to a new situation. This is my first major life detour that I remember. And so we come to this new school late summer. We go to kindergarten orientation. 
kindergarten orientation, and drew the budding dandy, I decided, hey, it's kind of a cool evening. I'm going to rock my leather jacket. So here I am, tough little five-year-old, jeans, white t-shirt, just like the cool guys on TV, and a leather jacket. Now, I don't know if this was a different time in American history, but my experience as childhood is I got in a lot of fights. I guess I was a brawler or something. And so somehow during kindergarten orientation, I managed to get in a scruff with somebody. Got a little fight. Not a great start to kindergarten. And guess what? That identity carried with me. The next day, it warmed up again. Late summer day in Minnesota. We're at the community pool. I'm just there minding my own business. And a couple boys walk up to me, and they ask me this question. Hey, aren't you that kid in that yellow jacket? Or excuse me, the kid in the yellow jacket. Am I curious, George? <laughs> aren't you that kid in the leather jacket? And that identity stuck with me. And throughout my elementary years, I kind of had that reputation of being the guy that would fight, especially for kids that were struggling, that sort of thing. So... What does this have to do with the story of Joseph? Well, fortunately, some wise people in my life told me, hey, Drew, you know what? Clothes do not make a man. But I found actually an ally in the American sage, Mark Twain, who happened to tell us otherwise. He said this, clothes make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. And to that, I would say, he apparently has never lived in the 21st century. <laughs> now, in case we think this is just a Western thing, the role of clothes and identity, I found some writing from Kathy McNichol. Micklewright, excuse me. She's writing for the Smithsonian, and she says this. Looking around the world, it's not just a Western thing that clothes is closely attached to identity. In Egypt, for instance, Dressing up a stick turns it into a doll. From China, abroad we judge the dress. At home, we judge the man. From Japan, even a pack horse driver would look great in fine clothes. And then finally, and I love this one from Korea, clothes are wings. And that's where I want to turn now because the way that I read the story of Joseph, the clothes or the changing of clothes are the wings that drive this story forward. So, Without further ado, we're going to jump into the story. And Brady did a great job kicking it off last week. If you haven't listened to that yet, I encourage you to go online, download that episode, give it a listen because it's fantastic. And he reminds us that the beginning of the story of Joseph is tied to this identity that is marked by an ornate robe. Andrew Lloyd Webber called it the technicolor dream coat, right? So he's given this ornate robe as a marker of his preferred status with his father. And it stimulates, it stirs up jealousy among his brothers. And that's where I want to pick up the story again. It reads like this. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of the robe, the ornate robe that he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into a cistern. You see... Joseph has his first detour, and the thing about the detours in our life is they often 
go straight to our identity. Life's detours, more often than not, will challenge who you are, how you conceive yourself, and how others view you. Life's detours often challenge our sense of identity. In my work as a chaplain, I often work with soldiers who are going through major transitions. Maybe they've been injured. Maybe it's coming close to retirement and they have to take off the uniform. They have to change their clothes and it creates a moment of crisis. Maybe you've had detours in, our li in your life. Maybe you're going through one right now. Maybe your vision was to be a parent, but all of a sudden you're facing the struggle of infertility or of miscarriage. Or maybe you are a parent and your kids won't return your phone call and you're facing a major detour. Maybe you're just trying to live life and all of a sudden a health crisis hits and you're stuck in bed and the best that you can do is maybe get some food to carry you through to the next day. Detours have the tendency to strip our identity. And so the story of Joseph continues. Joseph is sold into slavery. The robe that marked his identity is dipped in blood and now suggests to his dad that his beloved son is dead. But Joseph has a twist in his story. He ends up being sold into this prestigious house, the house of the Pharaoh's guard, Potiphar. And the story tells us this. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. I love this statement. The Lord was with Joseph. We're already starting to see in the story a new sense of identity that's not tied to his status, that's not tied to his clothing, but a new sense of identity is emerging, one who is with God. And the story continues. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except for the food he ate. So I've been a boss a few times in my life, and Joseph's the kind of guy I want on my team, right? All I have to do is worry about what I eat, and the rest gets done. And I love the way Brady summarized this for us this last week. He highlighted these two things. He said, God was present with Joseph. Joseph was present in his circumstances. And Joseph, despite the detour, Joseph flourished where he was planted. Now this, my friends, should be the end of the story. But the story pushes against conventional wisdom. Conventional wisdom, I would argue, is found in the biblical book of Proverbs. If you do what is right, God will prosper you. But something I learned way back in seminary was that you have to read the book of Proverbs with the other wisdom literature. The book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes that talk about, yes, there is wisdom and if you do things right, thing, good things tend to happen to you. However, life is chaotic. Life is messy. And good things don't always happen to good people. So in Joseph's first detour, you could kind of go back and parse, hey, maybe Joseph had some responsibility in this detour. Maybe if he wasn't a brat to his brothers, 
maybe things wouldn't have gone quite the same way. It doesn't take away the responsibility of his brothers. It doesn't take away the responsibility of his father. But there is some responsibility in that story that rests on Joseph. Coming into this next detour, it seems like things are completely out of Joseph's control. The story continues. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Joseph is now in the classic catch-22. He either has to disobey an order from someone that is an authority over him, or if he obeys that order, what's going to happen? He's going to dishonor his master, and even more importantly, he's going to dishonor his God. Joseph is stuck between a rock and a hard place. Potiphar's wife persists for days with the harassment. And one day, she's alone with Joseph. And the story says this. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak with her in her hand and ran out of the house. Here we have Joseph once again. Like the story with his brothers, he is again stripped of his identity. He is stripped of his status a favored servant, and is running naked and alone. Joseph's identity is again in question and now appears to be in the hands of his abuser. So she says to Potiphar, excuse me, she kept her cloak beside her until the master came home and then she told him this story. She says to Potiphar, That Hebrew slave you brought us, that Hebrew slave you brought us, came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left this cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Potiphar's wife is putting the blame, the responsibility for her misconduct on the head of Joseph. And suddenly, what happens? Joseph's master was enraged. He took him out and put him in prison where the king's prisoners were confined. Now I want to pause the story here because it's kind of a scenario where it's out of the frying pan and into the fire. You think if God was with Joseph that just the opposite would happen and yet now Joseph is again stripped naked of his identity in the pit, alone and suffering. And Joseph has opportunity, right? What opportunities before Joseph? It's the opportunity to be angry. It's the opportunity to be resentful. It's the opportunity to doubt. And it's the opportunity to languish. And yet, in the midst of this yo-yo story of detours, there's a counter-narrative that begins to emerge. Because I love the way that the writer of Genesis tells what happens of Joseph in in prison. It says this, Well, Joseph was there. Does this sound familiar? Well, Joseph was there. The Lord was with him. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. Now, I've sat on several hiring boards in my life. But I've never seen 
I've never had somebody send me a resume. You see, you see some resumes that are kind of plussed up a little, bit, a little bit, and you kind of wonder, did this person really do that in their job? Imagine Joseph's resume coming to you, and it says on it, yeah, I worked here and I did everything. I was the guy that made the business run. And then you're like, no, 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 no. There's no way. So you call the references. And what does the reference say? No, that's about right. Joseph was the guy that made everything run, and we see that in this next portion of the passage. The warden paid no attention under anything in Joseph's care, because why? The Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. The Lord was present with Joseph. Joseph was present in his circumstances. And Joseph flourished where he was planted. But things don't really go better for Joseph. He's apparently in prison for years. We don't know exactly how long it was. But he's languishing in prison, doing the best he can. And one morning, he sees two fellows. And these two fellows are kind of looking disturbed. And I love that rather than ignoring them, like someone in his situation could easily do, what does Joseph do? He goes to them. He seeks to comfort them, and he talks to them. And it turns out that both of these fellows had dreams. And if you know the story, if you've been in Sunday school, you know that these two were servants in the Pharaoh's house, in the king's house. One of them was the chief cupbearer, the person who poured the drinks and tasted them to make sure they didn't have poison. Great job. The second was the Pharaoh's baker. And they both had dreams, and they came to Joseph for the interpretation because if you remember in the first part of the story, Joseph had a knack for understanding dreams, or at least he thought he did. So they came to him, and Joseph interpreted their dreams to the cupbearer. He said, in three days, you're going to be returned to your position. Your identity is going to be restored to you. But to the baker, he said, sorry, man, I've got bad news for you. In three days, you will die. And things came past as Joseph had predicted. And the cupbearer was returned to his status, returned to his identity. And on his way out the door, Joseph goes to him. Joseph isn't just passive in his state. He's actively trying to change his state in life. He goes to the cupbearer and says, Hey, when you're back in the court of Pharaoh, remember me. Put in a good word and the cupbearer is like, Yeah, man, I got you. I got you, dude. But the cupbearer forgot Joseph. And as the story goes on, we learn that Joseph spends an additional two years in prison. Until one morning, the Pharaoh wakes up, like his servants two years earlier, disturbed by a dream. And we're not going to go into the details of the dream, but basically it's got some weird details about cows eating cows and grain eating grain. And Pharaoh goes to the wisest people in his court, to the music magicians of the empire, and none of them can explain the dream to Pharaoh. And suddenly that cupbearer, who two years earlier had told Joseph he had his back, remembers his promise. And he says, Pharaoh, I, I, I think I might know a guy. I think I might know a guy. And this brings us back to the story of Joseph and his clothes. 
So Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and, was quick, and, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved his head and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. I got to say, Joseph did a better job preparing than I did this morning. As, a, as an army guy, I'm a little ashamed that I've got some, uh, got some fuzz in my face. But Joseph made himself presentable, comes before Pharaoh. Not only does he interpret Pharaoh's dreams, but like the guy on the resume, he says, oh, by the way, I've got a plan for you how to keep your empire, how to keep Egypt out of danger and help it survive. So what does Pharaoh say to him? I love what Pharaoh says next. Pharaoh asks all those around him, he says, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the spirit of God? Look at how the identity has changed over the story. At the beginning, Joseph's identity is bound by his favorite status, his favorite status with his father. And as the story goes forward, his identity is now described not by one of his fellow tribesmen, but by the king of Egypt as one who is in the spirit of God. So what happens? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph just met this dude 30 minutes earlier. And now, just like Joseph's resume had said, the Lord is with Joseph. Joseph is present in his circumstances. And Joseph flourishes where he was planted. He has made the viceroy of all of Egypt. And just in case we wondered what the author was doing with clothing, this comes next. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. Now, when we think of detours in life, oftentimes we think of detours as things that are going poorly. But every once in a while, Life brings us a detour that looks a lot like this. Life brings us a detour that looks a lot like success. And so the question has to be asked, what do we do in that type of detour as well? And we're going to look at that portion of the story next week. But as I wrap up today, I want to highlight how this story carries its way forward in the story of the people of God. You see, the story of Joseph is one of the longest narratives in all of the Old Testament. And it's a formative story for a people, a people whose history is filled with detours. If you're familiar with the Old Testament at all, you know that time and time and time again, the people of God, their very identity, their very survival is put to the test. And so I love what the prophet Isaiah says, very much reflecting this story that we read this morning. Isaiah, and Isaiah chapter 61 says this, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robes of his righteousness. And continues, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This idea of God 
being the one that gives us our identity, God being the one that clothes us. No matter what our circumstances, no matter how well things are going or how poorly things are going, our identity is found in God. And this message carries forward into the New Testament. Jesus, in Luke, the very first act that Jesus does in his public ministry is he opens to this portion of Isaiah as the foundation for his ministry on earth. And I love the way the Apostle Paul, who wrote most or majority of the New Testament, summarizes it. He says this, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have been what? You've been clothed, or you have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Whatever your source of identity is, maybe it's not quite so shallow as the clothes that you're wearing. Maybe it's family. Maybe it's job, relationship, your health. Whatever your sense of identity is, that is secondary to the identity that God is with you. You are clothed in Christ And Paul summarizes it this way in the book of Colossians, where we'll conclude today. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. There is no Gentile or Jew, but Christ is all and is in all. With that, my friends, let's close in a word of prayer. If you are here today, and you're going through a detour in life, or you have a friend or somebody in your life that is going through a detour, we invite you to come to your left under the screen, to my right, after the service, and we'll have people, we'll have friends there that are there to pray with you. If that's not you, or if that is you, everyone in the room, I invite you to stand with me. And I'm going to conclude with a prayer that I've adapted from Isaiah chapter 61. Receive this as your blessing. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Spirit has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide those for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he has clothed me in the garments of salvation and arrayed me in the robes of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with jewels, For as the soil makes the sprout come up and the garden gives seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up upon all the nations. Friends, go today in the knowledge that you are clothed in Christ. Whether you're in a detour, those around are in a detour, you bring the love and the beauty of Christ to that situation. Go in God's blessing. Thank you.